0: Welcome to Classics Confidential and to the first in a pair of episodes about Roman memory. In this first programme we'll be talking about Roman memory on a large scale, big imperial monuments and rituals like the triumphal procession. In the second programme we'll scale down to talk about smaller objects of memory, souvenirs and mementos. Both programmes have been inspired by a recent collaborative project on Roman memory called Memoria Romana, which we'll hear more about in just a moment. But first, let's get a bit of backgrounds.
1: There's been debates about the statue of Rhodes in Oxford, about whether it should be kept in place, whether it should be removed, how much information should be provided about his you know, immensely controversial acts in southern Africa and it's become this kind of space in which there have been protests and debates about British colonial legacy.
0: That's the voice of Dr. David Tollerton who's lecturer in Jewish studies and contemporary biblical cultures at the University of Exeter. I met David at the 2017 Conference in Implicit Religion. And I asked him to give us his perspective on the rich field of memory studies.
1: I mean, in Holocaust studies, there's this definite chronology whereby after 1945, for the first couple of decades, there's very little public discourse regarding this event that gets called the Holocaust. There's lots of kind of private memory and lots of things going on, but kind of big public memory didn't really take place in Israel or America until 1960s. Um, when there was a trial of Adolf Eichmann, there was a six day war in 1967, and it all stirred things up, and suddenly memory of um, Holocaust became a big deal, particularly in Israeli and American society. But in terms of kind of memory studies within Holocaust studies, it's really the 1990s when. People that enough kind of time had elapsed, enough things had happened that scholarship suddenly started thinking. You know, we're not just going to examine what happened in the Nazi era, but also how memory has developed. So there's a really important book by James Young called *The Texture of Memory* from 1993. Um, in 2000, there's Peter Novick's uh, I think it's *Collective Memory: Holocaust and Collective Memory in America*, which stirred things up a little bit about kind of he he was arguing about the kind of the role of the cold war in constructing memory uh, the role of politics and one can debate it at great length there's this phrase um from james young's book that so i think i've got to get it right so that the um the motives of memory are never pure and that memory never happens in a vacuum I almost want to kind of put that on a t-shirt or make my students memorise that.
0: These debates form a crucial part of the background for the Roman case studies that we'll be hearing about today. The things that happened in the 20th century and how people have memorialised those events... Well, that's influenced how we look at ancient constructions of the past, how different groups of Romans in this case decided what to commemorate from their past and how they positioned themselves morally and ethically in relation to those remembered things. Now, from 2009 to 2013, dozens of classicists participated in a big international project which looked at Roman memory in a variety of forms, including history, literature, arts, and religion. Let's meet the director.
2: Yeah, I'm Professor Karl Galensky. I'm from the University of Texas in Austin and I had the good fortune to be awarded a prize from the research prize from the Max Planck Society, which is mostly on scientific, engineering, uh, natural sciences issues, but they also have a, every four years a, a nice big award on uh, humanities. And our focus was on, the, on memory and realm and how things are being remembered, who does the remembering, how important is it when it comes to realm concerned with memory is pervasive. Everybody talks about it, Uh, the authors do. We see it in the arts, the architecture. Uh, Just a few basic points, I would say. One is that history is not differentiated from memory. In fact, history and memory are being equated. And it used to be like that until the 19th century when people wrote uh, the national history of their countries and that's when history, per se, as a profession came in, as a technical profession came in. Before then, history and memory are pretty much the same. You uh, have expressions in Cicero, many other authors, Livy, let's say history, is really the preservation of memory or Uh, history is really the memory of the race gestae of the great deeds that were done by people. So it's really the the, the same equation there. When it comes to the arts, and a lot of people, of course, are familiar with Rome, also the visual element, which played a very big role in in Rome, needless to say. uh, uh, They're they're almost obsessed with memorializing. Here's another perspective. You know, people don't live that long. Average life expectancy is in the mid-30s. Uh, so how do you preserve the memory of your family, your ancestors? And the answer is, if you have the means to do it, a an absolute flood of statues, monuments. Sometimes in Rome in later days, I have to clean them all out and put them somewhere else. I mean, you find them virtually on every street corner. Uh, and there's a lot of memorialization going on. Uh, so history, literature, art... You talk about religion, a lot of the religious practices are really based on memory. It's not that you have manuals, that's all there. Think of the, the, the maybe the, the most prominent and the best known example at uh, Rome, the Roman religion, the most uh, public one. It's the triumph. Well, uh, let's say somebody uh, is awarded a triumph. How do you do this? How do you construct the whole procession and all that? There there are no manuals. It's basically done from memory. Every triumph is different. And how was that done? Well, they would ask and say, how was it done last time? Memory plays a very big role.
0: One of the grantees on the Memoria Romana project was Professor Maggie Popkin who now works in the Department of Art History and Art at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. Maggie's work on the project led to her new book which is called The Architecture of the Roman Triumph Monuments, Memory and Identity. So I called her in Ohio to find out a bit more about this. So The Roman triumph was one of the,
3: was really sort of the major victory ritual of ancient Roman society. It was this often lavish procession that took place to celebrate Rome's victories over foreign people. And the army and the triumphant general would return to the city of Rome and have uh, basically a parade through the streets of Rome in front of certain monuments along a certain route. Um, That would culminate at the temple of Jupiter, Optimus Maximus, the chief god of the Roman state on the Capitoline Hill. And the the general would make a sacrifice to Jupiter there. Um, And that was sort of how kind of the official um, ritual conclusion, in a sense, of Rome's victories over foreign people. It was a pretty spectacular event. Um, the the first triumph is attributed to Romulus, the founder of the city, but triumphs were celebrated throughout the Republican period and then by emperors and sometimes their family members in the Imperial period. And uh, you could argue that the triumph continued to be celebrated even after the fall of the Roman Empire because it morphed into um, various kinds of victory celebrations of Byzantine emperors and later even into papal processions in cities in Italy. So the Triumph was remembered for quite a long time after Rome as well.
0: So how exactly does the theme of memory deepen our understanding of the Roman Triumph?
3: So I was
0: looking, I was
3: very interested in looking at the impact that monuments, that these, these buildings and um, you know various forms of architecture that were built along the Triumphal Route, what impact they had on how people in the city of Rome perceived this ritual of the triumph and then continued to remember it after the actual performance of the procession, because we have to remember that the procession, the triumphal procession was ephemeral, right? It would last anywhere from maybe a few hours to at most a few days, and then it was over, right? But these monuments that generals built along the route to commemorate their victories, well, those were eternal, or at least were intended to be an internal. And in fact, some of them do survive to this day. And so while Romans, you know, during the Republican period may have seen a few triumphal processions during their lifetime, um, during the Imperial period, you might only see one during your lifetime or none. Uh, so while you would only see maybe at most a few processions during your lifetime, you would live among these monumental reminders Of triumphal processions. Those formed the backdrop of daily life in Rome. You couldn't go to the Roman Forum or to the cattle market or the vegetable market or, you know, pretty much any space in the center of the city without confronting architecture that was about Roman victory and then this ritual celebration of it. And so I really, I found that these buildings um, that were built to commemorate the triumph or that housed aspects of the triumphal procession, so spectator buildings like theaters or amphitheaters that the triumph would go through, that these really shaped how Romans both remembered past historical triumphs, how they conceived of the institution in general as central to Roman identity, and how they imagined the performance of future triumphs. So these, these buildings also had an impact on what researchers call perspective memory, how we envision future events and plan for future events and decisions. Listening to
0: this, I was very struck by the way that Maggie was using the word memory. So on the one hand, we're dealing with something that people haven't themselves seen. You might only see one during your lifetime or none. Yet at the same time, we're also assuming that they remembered triumphs. But how can people remember what they haven't experienced? I mean, I found useful the
3: the distinction between episodic and semantic memory um, that scholars sometimes talk about. So. These are sort of the kind of the two main kinds of long-term memory that, you know, that people have. Um, Episodic memory is a sort of autobiographical memory. It is, we use that term to refer to uh, our memories of, you know, things that we experience personally, you know, people that we have actually met or, uh, you know, a a place that we've traveled to or a sporting event that we attended. Um, Semantic memory we used to refer to sort of um, our kind of our memory or our knowledge of kind of general facts or institutions. So, you know, an, an example that people often give is, you know, we all kind of um, have a memory we all know about in America, the Revolutionary War, you know, um, none of us today have experienced that personally, for obvious reasons. But it is part of, the cultural memory that we absorb, that we, we gather from a variety of sources, from books, from monuments, from conversations with our teachers or our parents or our grandparents. Um, so I found when people sort of understand that there are these two different kinds of, of memory, when we understand that there's the semantic memory, this sort of shared historical institutional memory, that is often... I think what's at play when we're talking about commemorative architecture for example right it can help us remember and and learn about and come to know events that most of us will you know will not have experienced personally
0: I think that's incredibly helpful in untangling what we mean by cultural memory Semantic memory does overlap with other concepts, shared knowledge, for example, as well as history, which brings us back to what Carl was saying earlier about the interchangeability of the terms memory and history in antiquity. At the same time, the term memory is a very powerful one, partly because it draws attention to the fact that the past is never fixed, but is continuously being reshaped and reconstituted.
2: And that's a very important point that memory is not something static it is it is something that is constantly under construction and reconstruction and here is really one of the links too to the uh, uh, modern findings in neuroscience about memory because it used to be thought just about memory memory uh, in, in antiquity it's kind of all stored up there just like a hard drive mm. on your computer you tap on it boom it all comes back memory actually the way it works in our brains it's when we remember an incident from our past our personal events etc it's being reconstituted it's being recombined from different parts of our brain every time it's a new process we see the same in a way in uh, in, the, in the in the construction of Roman memory this is not something that is static it is not something that is left undisturbed It's constantly being reconstructed, it's constantly being recreated. And I think that's part of its vitality.
0: Someone who was very skilled at manipulating memory in Roman times was the Emperor Augustus. He came to power in 27 BC and his reign effectively marked the end of the Roman Republic.
2: No, Augustus is a a very good example because he comes in at a time uh, where clearly a lot of change has been taking place. And I think one of the most cogent analyses that we've had in recent years is by Andrew Wallace Hadwell, who talks about the Roman Cultural Revolution. Now, what does he mean by that? No, it was not just a change in terms of politics and a different style of government. It is really that, uh, that that has a great deal to do with the preservation of memory, that the, let's say, the stranglehold of the upper classes on traditions on memory and so on really was loosened quite a bit under, under Augustus. And under Julius Caesar, you get now professional people in there, like the scholar Varro, who says here, I'm doing actually research on what was happening at that, uh, at that time, uh, and what was t- happening in, 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 past, uh, in past ages. Needless to say, a a lot of what he came up with, again, is just based on what people are saying, traditions, memory, and so on and so forth. But to be specific, so Augustus never was trying to sever himself from the Republican period. He was trying to put himself in a way as the culmination of that period. And and, and with this comes the, the whole issue of how to preserve and how to reshape memories, and Perhaps the most obvious example is this, that people know. He said, I restored 82 temples in Rome, and I rebuilt them. It's all good and true. What happened at that when, when the temple was rebuilt is that he often changed the anniversary date. I mean, people didn't go to church at that time, every Sunday, so to speak. Once a year, the anniversary date of the temple, that's a big celebration. So you go there, and the anniversary is usually... Whoever built the temple first, they won a big battle, something of the sort, so that's a date is given. Augustus comes in and changes a lot of these dates to dates that are relevant to him. His birthday, the conquest of Alexandria, the the conquest of Actium, uh, and so on and so forth. So in a way, when the cult continues, when the celebration continues, all of a sudden the memory is changed and is focusing more on him, on his achievements, than the republic. And you might say, well, that's very selfish and very self-aggrandizing, which to some extent it certainly was. But here's a very important point. Uh, Rome at that time, he recognized that too. That's a really big shift is, uh, this, that is taking place. This is now kaput mundi. This is now the, the, the center point of an empire. Uh, and to a lot of people... Around the Roman Empire, the old Roman traditions were, well, they were meaningless in a way, because it was not part of their own memories. He needed to create new memories. And so the reorganization of the way is is, is uh, focused, you know is focused on him, and uh, you know people can participate in these memories through festivals, performances, uh, and it's simply the the change from the Republic is not as political. It's also a larger cultural phenomenon.
0: Many of Augustus's imperial buildings harked back to the early days of Roman history, not only to the Republic, but further back beyond that to the stories of the city's birth. Professor Peter Wiseman is currently writing a book about Augustus and the Palatine Hill, a site with very strong links to Rome's foundation by Romulus. I met him at the 2017 Classical Association Conference and we chatted about Augustus's interaction with an old thatched hut on the Palatine Hill. We were in a very noisy cafe when we recorded this, so apologies for the background noise.
4: There were some thatched uh, buildings in, um, in Rome which were associated with Romulus and um, one of them is on the Capitol, and Vitruvius, who's our main evidence for it, says that it shows the mores where to it. So it. shows how the, uh, how, how the men of old lived, how, how simple their life was, and so forth. And so that seemed to me to be, you know, most where to start is, is as good a translation of, of uh, heritage as you're likely to get in Latin. But the interesting thing for me, because I'm writing a book about Augustus and the Palatine, uh, is the fact that there were also at least two thatched buildings or huts or whatever um, on the Palatine. The one Vitruvius was talking about was on the Capitol, which is not where you'd expect to find Romulus. Whereas on the um, on the Palatine there are uh, there were two buildings, quite separate ones. One of them on the edge of the Palatine Hill. Uh, at the top of the slope overlooking the Circus Maximus and people know about that and if you, um, uh, if you look up um, the new um, atlas of ancient Rome you'll find that's where the hut of Romulus is supposed to be. But there was also another one, much more important one, that was on the summit of the hill which is where um, Romulus according to the narrative in Dionysus of Halicarnassus, talking about the foundation of, of Rome, um, Romulus was... He had this augury contest with his brother, famously, about which of them was going to found Rome and give, give, give it his name. And so Romulus won that contest. And so the, um, the uh, assembled shepherds, which was sort of kind of embryo of the Roman people, they say to Romulus that we want you to be our king and Romulus says well okay I will do that but only when I've consulted the gods by augury. And so the way Dionysius tells the story, um, he, is, he spends the night overnight in a hut which is presumably the hut of Faustulus where he and Remus have been brought up. And then at dawn he goes out and looks eastwards, because that's the way augurs always look, and he gets his sign from the gods, there's lightning from the left, and so everything is fine. Now we know that this hut, according to Dionysius again, and also Plutarch, and also Cicero, was supposedly burnt down in the great fire when the Gauls sacked Rome in 387 BC. And when the Romans were searching through the rubble after the Gauls had gone, they discovered, in the rubble of this, this thatched building, they discovered the original lituus or augural rod used by Romulus himself for the very first... Um, uh, the very first uh, inaugural consultation of the gods at the foundation of Rome. Right, so far so good. So you've got... Um, These two huts on the Palatine, one of which is particularly associated with the moment when the foundation was inaugurated, literally, by Romulus taking the auguries and getting his time from the gods. Now that augury, which Ennius in his great epic poem described as augurium augustum, that augury was what gave Augustus his name. He was called he was Imperator Caesar, Commander Caesar, until 27, and then he is given, granted the name Augustus. The original idea was that he should be called Romulus, but then he decided no, he doesn't want that. Um, wouldn't imagine the good reasons why, but anyway, and so uh, he's happy to accept the name Augustus because of the association with this Augustus Altorian, and Suetonius makes it absolutely clear that it's it's Ennius's reference to it that. Uh, original Romulan augury. Now, okay, meanwhile, Augustus or Octavian, as he then was, has um, bought a house on the Palatine, And he's busy, his agents have been busy buying up all the neighboring houses and knocking them down so that he, Augustus, can create a nice big space and make it public because presumed before it had all been posh houses of the rich. So now he's going to destroy some of those houses in order to build a great temple of Apollo. And the temple of Apollo is going to look out on a, great, uh, uh, a new piazza, which, on which the frontage of the house of Augustus will also look out. And in the middle of that piazza, there is the auguratorium, there is the hut from which the original augury of Rome was taken. Now, the last bit of what I've just been saying wasn't in my paper yesterday at all. But it will be in the book, which is called The House of Augustus, and it will, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and with any luck at all it will be out in two years' time.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that. And that's a great example of how Augustus adopted parts of Rome's foundation story and wove them into his own imperial image. Another excellent example is his forum. Here's Professor Kargalinski
2: again. The big memorial place that, of course, was created by him was his forum. And what you had on the two long sides was statues of former statesmen and leaders who had deserved well of the state, who had uh, militarily and civilly just contributed a great deal. That's, on the one hand, that's the respect that he pays to the memories of those times. And at the same time, it clearly indicates to... I'm the culmination of all that. Now, here's an interesting point. Instead of reproducing this kind of arrangement uh, as if you're a museum, you go to the provinces and people take a cue from that and they're using their own statesmen, they're using their own people to put into the equivalence of this kind of arrangement. I think that's very successful. Some scholars have said, yeah, that really shows he failed. He didn't get that, that message across. Yes, he did, because people took it over for themselves, and that's how the, the whole Augustan Empire was supposed to work anyway, not directed top-down, but really as a contribution of many. So you go to Merida and other places, and there they have their own notables. They have their own dignitaries, and so on and so forth. Uh, and in a way recreating a, you know, a, a the same kind of environment Augustus created in the, uh, in, the, in the Augustan Forum.
0: That's very powerful. Augustus didn't just use Roman memory for himself but he altered the very way that it was structured and he gave people across the empire new frameworks for commemorating the past, for witnessing it. However, this didn't mean that memory became fixed or stable Here's David Tollerton again.
1: You can build a memorial, but you can't necessarily control what's going to happen with it. They're a little bit unstable. Even though I suppose the very inclination to build them is to kind of to try and stabilise memory. Nonetheless, it's a kind of, it's an inevitably uncontrollable entity.
0: We were chatting then about memorials in the 20th century, but the same applies to the past too. And in the last part of this programme, we'll look at the instability of Roman memory. We've got two case studies and the first is an example of what cognitive scientists call false memory, which is when we're convinced that we remember something that didn't actually happen. Maggie Popkin. There's a wide body of cognitive research on how external stimuli, but
3: particularly visual stimuli, can manipulate memory, can distort memories, can even make us falsify memories. And this was particularly illuminating for my study of the Arch of Septimius Severus in the Roman Forum, which is, you know, one of the best preserved Roman triumphal arches today. Anybody who goes and visits Rome uh, and goes to the Forum sees this arch kind of looming over the Forum at the foot of the Capitoline Hill. It's extremely impressive even today. And you can just Imagine what it would have looked like originally when its reliefs marble reliefs were painted in bright colors when it had Gilded statues of bronze on top of it showing the Emperor Septimius Severus in a triumphal chariot and so on Um, What's really interesting to me is that as I was researching this arch I kept finding references in histories and biographies of the Emperor Septimius Severus that said that he celebrated A triumphal procession in Rome um, in the year uh, 202, and they would, in the footnote, they would refer me to a passage in Cassius Dio, uh, who wrote a history of the Roman, uh, you know, a history of Rome in the Severan era. And when I went to actually read that passage, um, there was no mention of a triumphal procession of Septimius Severus in that year. And I started looking more closely at the surviving histories of the, you know, ancient histories of the Severan period. And no ancient author actually says that Septimius Severus celebrated a triumph. And so I started to think, well, why do all these, you know, very good conscientious modern scholars think that he celebrated a triumph? And what I came to realize is that the material remains the architectural monumental remains of Severe in Rome, like this triumphal arch in the Forum, have made, I think, uh, modern scholars, and I believe probably some ancient Romans, believe that Septimius celebrated a triumph when we, we really can't be sure that he did. You know, it's possible that this is a kind of an instance of the creation of false memory across history.
0: False memories like this are often generated by accident, purely by the power of a good monument and people's willingness to believe. But at other times, our memories can be manipulated more deliberately. Here's our second case study.
2: One term that is that pops up there all the time is the damnatio memoria, is basically you're trying to eradicate, you're trying to wipe out somebody's memory. Well, it's very interesting because first of all, that term never existed in Rome. It's made up like so many things by modern historians, and once it's in there, you can't get rid of it. You know, it stays there. So what does it mean? And and anyone who is some passing familiar, familiarity with Roman art uh, has, has seen this. It is basically, here you have a bad emperor, for instance, one example, you get the emperor Nero, uh, you get the emperor Caligula, you know, somebody like that, Domitian, and Their their marble portraits were just all over the empire, and marble is very expensive. So when when the emperor falls into disgrace, you don't simply throw the marble away. You get the sculpture, and often these things sit for a while. They're stored, and often it may be decades later. You just use that piece of marble, and you recut it, and you reshape it into the portrait of a good or more acceptable emperor and of course one precondition is that there's you know enough uh you know face left on all this if you got a very uh uh small-faced emperor you probably can't do it but there weren't too many of those so here we go and then people said yeah this really shows these statues were being redone to eliminate the memory of that particular emperor First question really is so how do we how do we know that the old emperor was in there? And you might say, well, it's a sloppy workmanship. Not so. I think what they did in many cases leave deliberately. Some pretty substantial trace of the old emperor as you could see, what was actually happening. And here again, I go with the concept of this being dynamic. So instead of here's the old emperor, here's the new emperor. Okay, that's it. No. The, the the sculptor is asking you really to think about that and create the dialogue, create the dynamic. So we can see enough traces of Nero. Well, you yeah, know, Trajan is really a lot better. Here comes your dialogue. It's supposed to you know it's supposed to, to, to get you going. It is not simply wiping out the guy's memory, not at all. The, the they want you to replicate in your own thoughts, but the what the sculptor did. Here is the bad example, here's a good example. How do we get from one to the other? And everybody will have their own answers. I'll give you another give you another example along these lines. the damnatio memoria and how this, how this does not really eliminate memory at all. Let's say you have an inscription. And uh, there is you know, a, a so-called bad emperor is in there. Fine. You go in there and wipe out the inscription. OK. So what are you looking at? There's an inscription then and there's a blank. And let's say you take your little son or daughter, and you just, you know, walk through Rome and you visit this, or visitors come from out of town, and they see the blank and they say, what was there? So, again, nothing's wiped out. In a way, the erasure almost elicits even more interest in what was there earlier than than just uh, resulting in a total elimination, evisceration of memory. So the term is, just to sum up here, the term itself is a modern term. It was that there was never a Roman statue along. This. You could declare an emperor as a, as, a, as a hostess, as an enemy, and then there were certain sanctions. Uh, when it comes to the statues, the intent very often is that the easy way is to mutilate and to simply hack away at it. But, uh, we see that a lot. But when you transform it, uh, the intent very often is, no, you don't want to wipe the, the, the person's memory out at all. You want to use it as an example to show that somebody can do better. And that was it. But again, it's, it's a much more dynamic and I think a much more vital perspective than to say here they were simply recut and then they put them back in the museum or whatever.
0: Well, that's a brilliant example of how Roman sculptors and their patrons were drawing on the past for the purposes of the present. And it brings us full circle back to what David Tollerton quoted earlier.
1: The motives of memory are never pure. Memory never happens in a vacuum
0: that's all for this time but we'll continue our exploration of memory soon with a look at souvenirs and mementos in the meantime you can always join in the conversation on twitter using the hashtag ClassicsConfide. this episode featured the voices of david tollerton carl galinsky maggie popkin and peter wiseman and it was recorded and produced by me jessica hughes thanks very much for listening